podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. It is Wednesday, the 1st of November. Hope you're all well and having yourselves a pleasant day in the pissings of rain. Uh, It is Wednesday, which means it's Nostalgia Day, and today we will be doing Euro 2004. However, before we get there, we've got a few other things to get through. EFL Cup last night, Mansfield nil. Port Vale won Alfie Devine with the only goal of the game for Port Vale. Alfie Devine is an immensely talented young midfielder on loan at Port Vale from Tottenham. Uh, He was one of those that was at Wigan and was seen as a future star. And then Wigan hit their serious financial issues and Spurs managed to nab him for 300 grand 
Um, he previously been in the academy at Liverpool. He is very, very highly regarded. And if he continues to perform, perform for Port Vale, this could well lead to either a better loan next season and then some opportunities in the Tottenham first team. Or, given Ange Postacoglu's history of promoting young players, potentially, if he continues to do well this season, he's got two goals from 11 appearances thus far. Sorry, three goals from 14 appearances, two and 11 in the league, three and 14 in all competitions. If he continues to do well, he might well find himself in the Spurs setup next year because there's been a lot of talk about James Madison and what happens if he gets injured. Alfie Devine could be good long-term insurance for James Madison for Spurs. So that's that's a, a promising sign for Tottenham. Also last night in the EFL Cup, Middlesbrough defeated Exeter 3-2 in Exeter. They went 1-0 down. Ryan Trevitt opened the scoring. Morgan Rogers, more on him in a sec, scored on 49 to equalise. Borough then went 2-1 up. Samuel Silvera. Ryan Trevitt made a 2-2 and then a late penalty from Emmanuel Latte Lath gave Borough the win. Now, it was a heavily rotated Middlesbrough team. I don't know whether it's a rotated Exeter team or not. I genuinely couldn't tell you. But Morgan Rogers is a really interesting player, a very promising player. Now, he is 21, so his development is not where it would have been hoped it would be at this stage. He came through at West Brom and was super highly regarded. There was a few of them that came through at West Brom around the same time. And when Man City nabbed Rodgers, the feeling was that it was the wrong move for him because he needed to be playing regularly. And while he did get regular games, it wasn't for City. He had a lone with Lincoln, alone with Bournemouth, and alone with Blackpool. In his entire time at City, he played five games and scored one goal. He has changed his game in the last few years. Previously, he had been more of a nine. Now he's more of a ten. But he's a different type of ten. He's six three, six four. He's skillful. He likes to run in behind. He's not an inventive passer type of player, but he is very, very talented. And he is somebody that, in time, potentially works his way to a Premier League move. The other uber-talented youngster who was at West Brom at that time was Louis Barry, obviously, who is now at Aston Villa. He had a spell at Barcelona. I'm not sure why he made that move. I'm not sure who advised him to make that, make that move. He's been at Villa now since 2021 and he's on his fifth loan, but he is playing brilliantly for Stockport this season. He has nine goals in 17 games already this year. And the two of them, I I would hope go on to reach their potential. Uh, And I'm still hoping that Louis Barry will make the decision to switch back to playing for Ireland because I do think he's a player that could have a bright future with the Irish national team. 
Uh, that's completely by the by. Those were our results last night in the League Cup. We are going to take a quick sojourn around Europe, not to go through the games that took place, just to look at the state of play in the league tables. So we'll start in France. Nice are top, one point clear of PSG. Then you go Monaco, Lille, Reims, will still still doing an excellent job. Brest, Nantes, Wren will be very disappointed with their start. Only two wins, but only two defeats from their 10 games. Marseille sit ninth. Lens, current Champions League team, don't you know, uh, are 10th. And you've got to go all the way down to 18th to find Leon. And Leon haven't won a game in the league this season. Nine games, no wins, three draws. They are currently seven points from safety. Now, it is only 10 games for the other teams, nine for them. But remember, it's a 34-game season. So they're almost a third of the way through, and they're seven points from safety. So they really need to get their act together. And if you saw the, the news at the weekend, their coach was attacked and hit with rocks and all sorts uh, as they were driving into Marseille. So some of the players picked up injuries. Uh, the manager, I believe, was cut quite badly. And that's just another another blow for Leon in what is becoming a very difficult season. And it's strange as well because there's there's no excuse for them to be this bad. There really isn't. Um, John Texter, co-owner of Crystal Palace, he bought the club. Uh, Laurent Blanc was the manager. Laurent Blanc was then sacked in September, replaced by Fabio Grosso, and I don't think he's going to last all that long. But if you look at their squad, Anthony Lopez is really good. He's a very, very good goalkeeper. He's probably slightly past his best, but he's a very, very good goalkeeper. In defence, you've got Tagliafico, who's good. You've got Sinali Diamande. He's decent. Clinton Mata is decent. Mamadou Sarr is a big-time talent. But then you've got, like, Jake O'Brien, who didn't quite make the grade at Crystal Palace. He's there. Dejan Lovren. He's garbage, and now he's old garbage. And Duja Coletta Carr, who struggled at Southampton. So there's definite issues in defence. But in midfield, I mean, they're loaded with talent. You've got Paulo Coco. He's a good player. Maxens Kakare is outstanding. Quarantine Taliso is tremendous. The knock on him, obviously, is injuries. Johan LePennant is a fantastic player, a genuinely fantastic player. Skelly Alvaro looks a good player. Mohamed El Arouche looks a big-time talent. And they've got Ainsley Maitland-Niles. That's a really good midfield group. In attack, you've got Mama Balde. He's decent. You've got Lacazette. He's older now, but he's still really good. You've got Tino Cadawere. He's a talented player. Rayan Cherky is outstanding. You've got Diego Moreira in there on loan from Chelsea. He looks promising, but I don't know too much about him. 
Jafinho, who looks a good player, they brought him in from Brazil, from Botafogo, also owned by John Taxter. And uh, Ernest Numa, the young Ghanaian winger, who they signed in the summer. Well, uh, technically, Molenbeek, also owned by John Taxter, signed him using Leon's money, really, because it was John, because no way they could afford to buy him at the price he went for. And then he was loaned to Leon as a workaround for FFP. We're going to see more of that as well. Um, they did lose a couple of talented players in the summer. Um, Bradley Barcola left. He went to PSG. Jeff Rene Adelaide, he went to Molenbeek. Um, I, I really like him. He just never seems to put it all together. And Amin Saar was loaned to Wolfsburg in a move I didn't really understand. Now, I know it didn't really work for him last season after joining from Heronveen. But still, I don't really understand why they loaned him out. He just needed time to settle in. There's there's a really talented group of players there. There might have been a bit too much movement in the summer, but there's no excuse for them being bottom of the league. The, their defense is bad. They've got decent fullbacks. The centre-back situation's a mess. But you still shouldn't be bottom of the league and winless. Like It's not like they've played only the very best teams. There's been some games there they should have won, like Le Havre, for example, Brest, for example, Strasbourg, Montpellier. These are games they should have been winning. They're all bottom half teams and they couldn't perform against any of them. Um, Moving on to the Bundesliga then, Bayer Leverkusen are top, unbeaten, eight wins and one draw from nine games. Xabi Alonso has them playing really, really well and playing good football. Bayern Munich are second, two points behind. Then Stuttgart, 21 points, two points behind Bayern, four off top. This is a team that barely survived in the division last year. They finished 16th last season and had to survive to the relegation playoff thing against the third-place team from the second Bundesliga. Then we get Dortmund in fourth, unbeaten, but just drawing too many games again. Then it's Leipzig in fifth, Hoffenheim, Eintracht Frankfurt, Freiburg, Wolfsburg. Mönchengladbach and Werder Bremen sit in at 11th and 12th. Cologne are 17th. And the big shock is Union Berlin, currently sitting in 15th place. Two wins and seven defeats this season. They've lost their last five league games in a row. So that's a big surprise. Uh, Mines are bottom, no wins from nine, three draws. And good enough for them. But Union Berlin there, Union Berlin is the is the surprise um underperformer in the same way that Stuttgart are the big overperformer. I suppose you put it down to not having a squad that's really ready to compete in the Champions League and in the Premier League. But it's not like they're making a great fist of the Champions League either. Like they're bottom of the group, they've lost all three games. They have now lost nine games in a row in all competitions. They started the season really well. They won their first three, but it was a story of Waldorf, who are lower league, Mines and Darmstadt newly promoted. They win their first three, and since then, they've actually lost seven in a row in the league, three in the Champions League, 
and they've lost in the in the cup to Stuttgart. Eleven defeats in a row. That really isn't good. And that probably will start to bring some hefty pressure on their manager, who has done an amazing job since taking over. An absolutely amazing job. And was just recently voted manager of the year in Germany. But 11 defeats in a row or 11 defeats in a row, and that will raise questions. Uh, on to Syria. Inter are top 25 points. Eight wins, one draw, one defeat from their 10 games. Then it is Juventus two points behind. Milan a further point behind them. Atalanta are on 19 and Napoli on 18. And it's Fiorentina, Lazio, Bologna, Roma. Very mixed start for them. Monza, Lecce, Frosinone, Torino, Genoa. Doing well. Doing well, if you don't mind. Uh, in 14th. Uh, Sassuolo, Verona, Udinese, Empoli, Cagliari not doing so well, newly promoted, and Salernitana. Sassuolo are probably the biggest underperformer thus far this season. Uh, while I would say Genoa, even though they're only one point, uh, one place ahead and on the same number of points, are the surprise overachievers because I didn't have much hope for this season. But that is all going. Swimmingly, they should be fine, and so should Sassuolo. I guess Sassuolo, I, I would I would expect Sassuolo will end up in the top half of the league. They're only, as things stand, win their next game, they could actually go up into the top half if results went their way. So my guess is that they'll end up pretty strong in like eighth or ninth at the end of the season. Um, Juve performing so well is is a positive sign for them, but Inter have been very good. Now, the fall off of Napoli, they are the big under. They are the big underperformers, but it was entirely predictable. You sold your best centre back, not that you had a choice, you had a buyout clause, and you didn't replace him properly. Uh, Nathan doesn't look anywhere close to the standard uh, required to replace Kim. Now, he's not a bad player at all, but just doesn't look close to the standard required to replace. Arguably the best centre back in the in in world football this past twelve months. I think that might be fair. That that is probably where you would put Kim. Certainly in the top few. Um, and obviously the manager. The way they went about things with the manager, kind of forced his hand and he just reacted by resigning and leaving and they replaced him very very badly so yeah not entirely unpredictable there into Portugal we shall go Uh, Sporting are top 25 points the only unbeaten team left in the league after 9 games 8 wins and 1 draw 3 point gap to Benfica and Porto Vitoria are the surprise overachiever in fourth. Then we get Braga in fifth. Boa Vista showing signs of life, though they have been poor across the last few games. Uh, in sixth, Morenze, Familiqueau, Estrella, Porto Menens, Gil Vicente, Casapia, Ferranz, Chavez, Aroca, Vesela, Rio Ave, and Estorel Prea. 
round out the table. Um, nobody without a win, though, which is, you know, at least not as embarrassing as what we see from uh, Leon and Mines. Uh, to Spain, Real Madrid are top, 28 points, ahead of Girona on goal difference. Girona clearly the biggest overperformer in Europe right now. Nobody would have had Girona to be where they are right now, considering they finished 10th last season. And the season before that, they were in the Secunda division. Um, This is a huge improvement, but obviously they are owned by the City Group, so they do have a decent bit of financial muscle behind them. Uh, Third place is Atletico Madrid, three points behind. Um, Did anyone have Atletico Madrid having the joint best attack in La Liga after 10 games on their bingo card? Because I certainly did not. Barcelona are fourth on 24 points. Then Real Sociedad on 19. Their rivals, Athletic Club de Bilbao on 18. Real Betis on 17 with Rayo Vallecano. Then Valencia improved from last season. Uh, Las Palmas, Osasuna, Villarreal having a very poor season so far. Hitafe, Sevilla sitting 14th. Um, no wins in the last four. Not a particularly good team. Cadiz, Mallorca, Alaves, Celta Vigo. That's tough to see. Granada and Almeria. You would be asking questions about whether Rafa Benitez will survive all that long with Celta Vigo if they continue to struggle the way they've struggled thus far this season. Um, Rafa obviously had a tough time with Everton. Prior to that, he'd been with, with Dalian in China. Prior to that, though, he'd done well with Newcastle. But there was hope that this job would kind of be the right fit for him the right level of club for him at this stage of his career when he replaced Carlos Carvajal, um, former Swansea Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday manager. Um, I assume he'll get another job quite soon. If Rafa ends up getting fired from this one, I'm not really sure where he goes next. It might well be that he has to go to Saudi or somewhere like that. Carlos Carvajal might end up in Saudi as well. He's already been in the Middle East. He managed Alwada in the UAE Pro League. So he might be open to going back to the Middle East. Um, moving on to the Eredivisie then. Top of the league are PSV. Five points clear of Azad Alkmaar. Perfect record. Ten games. 10 wins, 35 goals scored, only five conceded. Alkmaar on 20, sit second and third on 25 points. Alkmaar do have a game in hand, which goes to show you they're playing well this season and Villa smacked them around. Uh, Then it's Feyenoord on 23 points. They lost, obviously, at the weekend. 220. um, But the, the... the most shocking thing is you look down and down and further down and then you keep going down and then all of a sudden you get to the very, 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 very bottom of the league. Eight games, so they do have two games in hand. One win, two draws, 
five defeats, scored 13, conceded 21, which is the second uh, second most goals conceded in the division. Five points for Ajax, bottom of the league. Now, there's little to no chance they'll get relegated. I think a few weeks ago I went through their squad. There's, some, there's, there's a lot of talent there. Not as much as in past years, obviously, but there's still a lot of talent there. But this is this is shocking how bad they are. And it's at the point now where they're having to close off parts of the stadium. We've, had, we've seen games abandoned. It's The fans are not not taking it very well, but then their fans are questionable on a couple of things. So, you know, uh, credit to Peter Bosto. I mean, what a job he's done with, with PSV since taking over. It's it's funny, you look at his career, bit of a journeyman, gets the Ajax job, does really, really well with Ajax. Dortmund, who've just parted ways with Thomas Tuchel, come in and buy him out of his contract. He is an absolute disaster with Dortmund. He goes to Bayer Leverkusen. He's good in the first season and then disappointing thereafter. Um, And then he went to Leon, and he was crap. He was absolutely awful with Leon, But now he's He's absolutely rampant with this PSV team. 14 games in all, sorry, 18 games in all competitions, 14 wins, three draws, and just the one defeat. And uh, looking like a good bet to to win the Eredivisie, Um, which he didn't do with Ajax that season he was there. To the Scottish Premiership, or Scottish Premier League, I'm not sure which it's called. It is the Premiership, isn't it? Scottish Premiership. I should know this. Yeah, it's Scottish Premiership. It used to be the Scottish Premier League. It's now the Scottish Premiership. Uh, anyway, it makes a difference. Celtic are top five points clear of Rangers, despite a bad result for Celtic at the weekend, where they somehow drew nil-nil with Hibernian, who are not very good this year. Uh, then it's St. Mirren, then Kilmarnock, Dundee, Motherwell, Hearts, Hibs, Ross County, Livingston, Aberdeen, and St. Johnston are bottom. So there we go. That is how we stand around Europe as things are. Things stand. It's how we stand around Europe as things stand. Well done, David. Good stuff. Um, We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll jump into nostalgia mode. Euro 2004. Not fondly remembered by a lot of people. But there's some reasons to be to be fond of this tournament. So we'll see you after this. Right, welcome back. So, Nostalgia Day, Euro 2004, which took place from June 12th to July 4th, in the summer of 2004, obviously, in Portugal. 16 teams, 10 venues, 8 cities, As a tournament, it was very good. They set it up very well. The stadiums were great. There was some tremendous football play. There were some great matches. There were some bad matches. And the final 
left a bit of a bad taste for a lot of people because it was a very dour affair. As a lot of matches featuring a certain team were, were and we'll get to that. Um, Portugal won the bidding for this tournament in 1999. They beat out a joint bid by Austria and Hungary and a bid by Spain. And obviously we will see the World Cup in 2030 hosted between Spain and Portugal as well as Morocco. The teams who qualified, Portugal as hosts, France, even though they were holders, they still had to qualify. This was their fifth appearance in the European Championships. The Czech Republic also making their fifth appearance. Sweden making their, sorry, their sixth appearance for both France and the Czech Republic. Um, It was the fourth appearance for Portugal. It was the third appearance for Sweden. It was the second appearance for Bulgaria, the seventh for Denmark, the ninth for Germany, only the second for Greece, the seventh for, for England, the sixth for Italy, the second for Croatia, the second for Switzerland, the first for Lazio, uh, for Lazio, for Latvia, the seventh for the Netherlands, the seventh for Spain, and the eighth for Russia. So, the stadiums were great. So Benfica had been talking for a long time about building a new stadium. The old stadium of light had become quite run down. And this competition and the money that was going to be injected in to the Portuguese FA and to the Portuguese economy prompted them to build the Estadio de Luz which still today is a very, very fine stadium. It's the Emirates. It's the exact same stadium as the Emirates for all intents and purposes. It's that same model. It's the same scale. It's the same shape. It's got pretty much the exact same layout as the Emirates. Um, Capacity of just under 65,000. So I think it is actually slightly bigger than the Emirates Stadium. Uh, Emirates Stadium capacity. Yeah, it's about 4,000 bigger than the Emirates, but it is the same stadium for all intents and purposes. Um, Another stadium that's basically built on the same template, just a bit smaller, is the Estadio José Alvaleda in Lisbon, which is the home of sporting. And again, it's a tremendous stadium, but it is pretty much the same template of stadium. It's got some slight design differences, but all things considered, it's it's from the same family of design. Um, there was a stadium built in Porto for this competition as well, the Estadio de Dragao, which is a great, great stadium to go and visit. It's a lovely stadium to watch a game in. There's not a bad seat in the house and it still has stood the test of time. There was a second stadium in the city of Porto used, the Dubesa, which is Boavista's home ground. Uh, it was renovated, heavily renovated for this tournament, but a new stadium was not built because they didn't feel that they wanted one. There was a new stadium built in Aveiro, 
the Estadio Municipal de Aveiro, which is the home of Bira Mare. Um, 33,000 or thereabouts. It was built specifically for this stadium. The Estadio Algarve was also built for this stadium. It is the home of, well, the former home of Ferenz, but they have moved. They no longer play in this stadium. This stadium doesn't get used a whole lot. Uh, the Gibraltar national team used it for a little while. The Portuguese national team have used it a couple of times. This was one that was largely just built for this tournament and truly has turned out to be a bit of a waste of money in the long run. Um, in Braga, they built a new stadium, the Municipal Stadium of Braga, which is a very, very unique stadium in that it only has two sides. There are no ends at this stadium. You can sit in the stand to the right side of the pitch or the stand to the left side of the pitch, but you cannot sit behind either goal. Now, one side is basically a mountain behind the goal, and the other side is just open to a hill, so a hill going downwards. So it's very, very unique. Um, It's still in use, obviously, for, for Braga games, and therefore has proved to be a worthwhile investment. Uh, It is an odd atmosphere because the sound just escapes. So it's not, it's not great. It's unique, but it's not great. Uh, In Gimerish, the Estadio de Afonso Henriquez was remodeled and reopened, but was not rebuilt. It was um, extended. It was renovated. They, modernized it but it is still largely the same stadium um i've never been to that stadium but it does look quite cool and it is home to vittoria sc uh cumbra they got a new stadium or not a new stadium but they got a um there was a new stadium it is a new stadium uh right in the middle of the city center it is home to academica de cumbra uh, it hosts twenty uh, holds twenty nine thousand people, and I'm guessing is very rarely even half full for games these days. And then finally, in Lyria, there was another new stadium built, the Doctor Magalas Pulsoa. It's quite a, an interesting looking stadium. It's It's a little bit cookie cutter on three quarter on like kind of three sides of it, and then the other side. I assume the color pattern was meant to be quite quirky and quite interesting. Uh, this picture I'm looking at is is a few years old, but it has aged very very badly, uh, and is not looking all that well. Could do with definitely a good power washing some of the panelling needs replacing and a lot of repainting is needed. Uh, Unio Deleria play there and um, they're currently in the second division. So again, I wouldn't imagine they see a a full house of 24,000 all that often. But at the time, because so many of these stadiums were new, they were exciting, they were, you know, they were shiny. 
it it gave a really really good view of the country with these modern stadiums. Uh, now, given the financial state of Portuguese football ever since, uh, including for Benfica and Porto and Sporting, I'm guessing overall they might have some regrets about maybe going as big with the stadiums. Um, but they still get really good crowds, all three of them. Like they sell out a lot of games, but they did put themselves under a lot of financial hardship with these stadiums. And for Benfica, they love a bit of financial hardship. They love to find ways to get themselves dug very deep into debt. We'll do the squads. We'll start with Greece, managed by legendary Otto Rehagel. Uh, notable players. Nikos Dabizas, then of Leicester City. Stelios Giannakopoulos, then of Bolton. Takis Fasiz, he was playing for Benfica. Georges Karagounis, very good midfielder. He was playing for Inter. And that is about it. Oh, Caristias, uh, the striker. Um, was with Werner Bremen, and uh, he pops up through this competition on a couple of occasions. Portugal, managed by Luis Felipe Scolari. Now, Scolari obviously had won the World Cup with Brazil, had used that success to get himself a hefty payday with Portugal, would leave Portugal in 2008 and go on to manage Chelsea without much success and would then sort of become what he had been before the Brazil job, which is very much a journeyman manager. Uh, He's currently manager of Atletico Mineiro. He has had in his career 5, 10, 15, 20. Portugal was his 20th job. Uh, 25. He is on job number 31. In 41 years. And he has had years where he didn't work. So, you know, he doesn't stick around. The longest he was in any job was the Portugal job. He was five years. Other than that, he's kind of two years max and gone. Ricardo, Paulo Ferreira, Rui George, Jorge Andrade, Fernando Couto, Costinha. Remember, Porto have just won the European Cup. So Portuguese football is riding a high. Castinho was a key part of that team. Um, Luis Figo, Petit, Paleta, Rui Costa, Simao, linked with Liverpool forever. Uh, Nuno Valente, he came to England. Ricardo Carvalho was about to move to Chelsea. A young Cristiano Ronaldo. Manish, who was also a key part of that Porto team, as was Deco. Um, Thiago, Nuno Gomes and Helder Postiga Nuno Gomes and Helder Postiga were their hopes of successors to Paleta as the starting number nine both had talent but neither ever really worked out the way it was hoped they would on to the Russians uh, Alexei Smirton is in this squad Alexander Mostovoy is in this squad who else do we have? Igor Akinfeev had one cap at the time, was 18 years of age, had not long 
prior broken into the CSKA Moscow team. He is still playing for CSKA. Uh, he has played 752 games for them. They're the only club he's ever represented. He retired from international football five years ago with 111 caps. He was only 30, 32 when he retired from international football, which is quite young. You'd imagine. You'd imagine he probably could have pushed for 150 caps quite easily. But he made a decision not to. Uh, that's about it. Uh, on to Spain, managed by Inaki Saez. His time in charge, largely forgettable. Santiago Canizares, Joan Captavia, Mar- Marchena is in this squad. Albelda is in this squad. Carlos Puyol, Ivan Helguera, Raul, Ruben Baraja, Fernando Torres, a young Fernando Torres, 20 years of age. Fernando Morientes, Albert Luque, Newcastle legend. Uh, Gabri, Vicente, Raul Brava was always a bit disappointing. Xabi Alonso, who would move to Liverpool after this tournament. Joaquin, Xavi, Juan Carlos Valeron, and Iker Casillas. Strong on midfielders and attack-minded players. Outside of Puyol. And to be fair, Helguera and Marchena were good, but you know, Cap obviously played a big part when they had real success, but that defense didn't really mesh together all that well. Uh the Croatians then. You've got Igor Tudor, you've got Dario Serna, Niko Kovac, Dario Simic, Ivika Olic. The great names are gone. Suker, Boban, Prozanecki, they're all gone. But it's still a pretty strong squad. England, managed by Sven Goran Eriksson. So we've got David James, Gary Neville, Ashley Cole, Stephen Gerrard, John Terry, Saul Campbell, David Beckham, Paul Scholes, a very young Wayne Rooney, but already has 13 caps to his name, Michael Owen, Frank Lampard, Wayne Bridge, Paul Robinson, Phil Neville, Ledley King, Jamie Carragher, Nicky Butt, Owen Hargreaves, Joe Cole, Kieran Dyer, Emil Heskey, Ian Walker, and Darius Vassell. Pretty strong squad. Pretty strong squad. Uh, there are, there is obviously one uh, notable absentee from this squad. Um, a player who decided that rather than taking the drugs test he was meant to take, uh, just simply ran away and didn't turn up for it. Um, now pontificates on modern football and proclaims himself to be the best centre back who's ever lived. Uh, if you listen to him speak, uh, Rio Ferdinand was unavailable for England in this competition because he was, you know, unable to take a drugs test for whatever reason. Uh, France. Now, France obviously won the World Cup in 98, won the Euros in 2000. Very, very, very disappointing World Cup in 2002. But they're back for another crack at it 
and Jacques Santini wants to, you know, restore France to where he sees they belong, which is the top of the pile in European football. There's some immense talents in this squad, and then there's some players that have absolutely no business ever playing for national teams as strong as France. Uh, Jean-Alain Boomsong would be in the latter. He had come through at Auxerre, him and Philippe Mexes were the kind of the hot young partnership of centre-backs. And to be fair, a lot of clubs were chasing both of them. Um, Boomsong, his career did not pan out the way... Neither neither of them ever reached the level that was expected. Uh, Boomsong would go to Rangers from Auxerre, didn't enjoy his time there, went to Newcastle. Somehow, after not doing all that well at Newcastle, ended up at Juventus, then Lyon, and then Panic and Ithos. He would win 27 caps for his country. He was a target for Liverpool. While he was at Auxerre, he was a target for everybody. And his contract ran out, and somehow Rangers managed to get him on a free. Um, he was only there. Was he there five months yeah, he was there half a season and Newcastle bid eight million for him. So for Rangers, it worked out brilliantly. They were able to sign him. They paid him enormous money. But then they made eight million when they sold him, only a few months later. So that worked out very well. Mexes had the better career. Uh, only won two more caps for France than Boomsong did. But he went to Roma. He was pretty good for Roma. Then he went to Milan and he was okay. And he hung around a long time and he had moments where he was really important to them. But he just never came close to living up to the, the promise. Like when he was, he was legitimately seen when he was at, at Auxerre as like the next Nesta. I hate to say it because I don't want to sound like I'm dumping on the fella, but William Saliba reminds me of Mexes. Now, th- that's a positive thing because I'm talking about Mexes at Auxerre when he was really, really good. That's what Saliba reminds me of. And I, I just hope he avoids the plateau and dip that Mexes had. Uh, Bigzante Lazarazu is there. Patrick Vieira is there at this point. Probably the best central midfield player in world football. William Gallas, Claude McAlealy, Robert Perez, at this point, very much at the peak of his powers. These Arsenal players are coming off an unbeaten season in the Premier League and are all at the top of their game. Uh, Marcel Desailly, 35 years of age, he's still in the squad. Uh, Luis Saha, Zinedine Zidane, the best player in the world at this point. Uh, his title would be taken from him, though, around this stage by Ronaldinho, uh, who would establish himself as the best player in the world for probably the next three years before Kaka. And then obviously Messi takes over and it's just Messi until the end of time. Um, Sylvain Viltord, uh, Thierry Henry, Mikel Silvestre. I mean, I, 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 he was solid. He was solid, but I don't know how he had the career he had. Came through at Wren, flopped at Inter, went to United, spent nine years at United somehow. 
never established himself as a starter, was always a good squad player and played a lot, to be fair. Then he went to Arsenal. Then he went to Werder Bremen and was awful. Uh, then he went to Portland Timber and then he finished off playing in India. He won 40 caps for France. He's not a 40 cap player. Jerome Rotten, this kid, or he's not a kid now, he's a, he's a grown-ass man. This guy should have been... This guy should have been great. He had everything you'd want in a winger. He was big, he was strong, he was quick, he could beat a man 1v1. An unbelievable crosser of the ball. One of the best crosses of the ball I've ever seen. Like Beckham-esque cross of the ball. But whereas Beckham would do it from stationary positions, this guy would do it on the run, full pelt, and just get unbelievable whip and dip and bend onto onto his crosses. Took a mean corner, took a great free kick. Came through at Cannes, went to Troy, went to Monaco, was very much on an upward trajectory. And then he joined PSG and it was the wrong move for him. He'd a loan at Rangers, which was a disaster. He had another loan in Turkey, which didn't work. He went back to Basti and had a decent run. And he finished off at Cannes just to bookend his career. Only won 13 caps. This guy should have won 100 caps. This guy should have won 100 caps. At PSG... He was sort of given the keys to the kingdom a little bit. When Ronaldinho left and went to um, Barca, that's kind of when they brought him in. And they just kind of gave him the keys to the kingdom. And he was earning a fortune. And I think it all went to his head. And he had some, like, he'd have runs a game where he was just wonderful to watch. And then he'd just disappear out of games. He would just disappear out of games. And then he would have games where he just wouldn't turn up at all. In his autobiography, he talks about a falling out with Zidane. And it makes me want to buy his autobiography now, but I don't know if I'll be able to find it in English. He should have been so much better than he ended up being. Um, he did terminate his own international career early by releasing that autobiography when he was still only 30 and having a proper pop at Zidane. And obviously, even though Zidane had retired, he still held a lot of sway. And that was going to be the end of Jerome Rotten's international career. But he should have been so much more. Uh, Lillian Turam, Fabian Barthez, Olivier Decour, solid, solid Premier League midfielder. Willie Sanyol was a solid right-back for years. David Trezeguet is still in the squad. Uh, Steve Marley. Um, don't know how he got 23 caps now, to be totally honest with you. Uh, Sydney, G- Sydney Govu should have been more than he was. He should have played in a front three as an inside forward with his pace and finishing ability. But he ended up getting stuck playing as an out-and-out winger. I call it Ryan Babble syndrome. A player who's born to be an inside forward, not a striker, not a winger, that tweener position in the middle. Cristiano was born to play that role. Salah was born to play that role. Babel wasn't of that level. So 
team, so managers weren't willing to change their shape to accommodate him. And it always annoyed me at Liverpool because Liverpool had Dirk Kaut and Ryan Babel, as well as Fernando Torres. And that would have been a perfect front three in a 4-3-3. It would have been perfect. And if you look at what the Dutch had at the time, it was Kaut right, Babel left, and Huntelaar as the nine. And it worked brilliantly. And Torres was better than Huntelaar. Similar type of player, more pace. It would have worked really, really well. Ability to run, run in behind, which Huntelaar didn't always have. That front three would have worked brilliantly for Liverpool. And Liverpool at the time had a midfield that had Gerard, Alonso, Mascherano. They could have just played them as a three. Rather than a two and a one, Gerard right, Alonso in the holding role, and Mascherano to the left as the primary ball winner, with Gerard as the primary attacker from the midfield. That would have been so much better than playing Cout as a winger and Babel as a winger, because neither of them really suited those roles. The problem for Liverpool is they didn't really have the fullbacks to make that work, but that's where you go and you buy those fullbacks, not Glenn Johnson. You go and you buy those attack-minded fullbacks, and you've got Carragher and Agger as your centre-backs, Reina and goal. That team would have pissed the league, would have pissed through the Premier League if Rafa had gone and bought the fullbacks and committed to 4-3-3 and moved away from the sterile 4-2-3-1 that he kept using. Anyway, uh, moving on to Switzerland, uh, Murat Yakin and Hacken Yakin are two very notable players, but the one that I always liked was Johan Vogel, um, who didn't have the career he should have had, but was a wonderful passer of the ball. Great at just sitting in that space in front of the centre-backs, not necessarily as a defensive player, but as a, as a playmaker from deep. Had come through at Grasshoppers, stayed with Grasshoppers probably a little bit too long. Then he moved to PSV and definitely stayed there for far too long. But they had a really good team at the time with Van Bommel and Koku in midfield with him, and they were having success. Then he went to Milan, then Betis. Brief spell at Blackburn and went back to Grasshoppers. Um, after a couple of years of semi-retirement or full-blown retirement, perhaps, he did come back and play a few games uh, at the age of 35. But playing for Blackburn um, scarred him so much he actually retired. Uh, Stefan Chapwisat, Alexander Fry, they're both in this squad as well. It's a talented group of players from the Swiss. Stefan Ancho in the squad. Syriaco Sforza was the one that they missed. He had, I think he retired at this point, Syriaco Sforza. Another one of my favourite 90s footballers. He would have been 34 at this point. So he probably aged out of the national team. Yeah, he had. He, he stopped playing for the national team three years earlier. Um, but he was great. He was a great, great player. Grasshoppers, Kaiserslautern, Bayern, Inter, Kaiserslautern, Bayern, and Kaiserslautern again. A great pass with the ball from midfield. Good tackler, really clever. Like a, not to insult him, but a bit of a poor man's Xabi Alonso. You know, didn't quite have Alonso's range, but close. Was as good defensively. Um, He's done a decent, a decent 
job as a manager. Not not spectacular, but done decently enough managing in Switzerland. Um, he's always one I like, but he wasn't in the squad for this tournament, so it's pointless talking about him. Uh, moving on to Bulgaria, uh, Milan Petkov is in the squad. Dimitar Berbatov is in the squad. Martin Petrov, who I always liked, very, very good player. And Stylian Petrov, who was a fantastic midfielder for Celtic and then for Aston Villa. Won 105 caps for his national team. Martin Petrov for for Wolfsburg and then for uh, Atleti and for Man City as well. But he started to have some injuries by the time he got to City. Just lightning in a bottle down the left wing and an absolute rocket launch of a right foot. I forgot he had the good spell at Bolton too. Uh, very, very good player. 90 caps he won in total. The Danes, Morton Olsen is still in charge because Morton Olsen might still be in charge today and we just don't know about it. Uh, Thomas Helveg, Thomas Gravelson, maybe the craziest man to ever play football. Jesper Gronkjaer, John Dahl Thomason, Ebbe Sand, Per Kraldrup, Christian Poulsen, Liverpool fans currently having flashbacks. Uh, Dennis Romadal, Peter Lovenkrantz was a decent squad. Pace, plenty of pacey wingers and lads that could kick people. That was the mix for Denmark back then. Uh, all of the Italians, you've got Buffon, Panucci, Cristiano Zanetti, Cannavaro, Ferreira, Del Piero, Gattuso, Vieri, Totti, Taldo, Nesta, Fiore, Marco Di Vaio, Antonio Cassano, Gianluca Zambrotta, Andrea Pirlo, and Angelo Peruzzi, as well as Marco Matarazzi. We mentioned Zidane earlier, and obviously Matarazzi was the other part of the last dance. And by last dance, I mean headbutt to the chest in 2006. But that's a strong Italian squad. Uh, the Swedes had Lars Lagerberg and Tommy Soderberg as joint managers, because that always works. Um, Olaf Melberg is in the squad. Johan Mialbi is in the squad. Freddie Lundberg, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, and Henrik Larsson give them real quality in attack. Uh, not a whole lot else, though. Moving on to Group D, then the Czech Republic. Karol Bruckner is the manager. Petr Cech, a young Petr Cech. Chelsea had bought him in the summer of 2003, but he had stayed with Wren for that last year. And he'd only been at Wren for one year. Chelsea bought him. He stayed a second year and then he came over. Um, and then he obviously was otherworldly for Chelsea until the head injury. And then he was still very good after that. You've got Vladimir Schmitzer, Karol Paborski, Jan Koller, two of my all time favorites, and Thomas Rizicki and Pavel Nedved, Milan Barosh. That's pretty much it. David Rosenau was, was a, a good defender. Bit of a head case, but a good defender. Uh, Germany, managed by Rudi Voller. World Cup finalists two years earlier. Oliver Kahn, Andreas Hinkle. If you remember when Philippe Lamb made his breakthrough during a loan at Stuttgart, he played left back so that Andreas Hinkle could play right back. Christian Vorns, Jens Nowotny, two very solid performers at centre-back. Frank Bauman, another very solid centre-back. None of them truly outstanding, but all very reliable. 
Uh, Didi Haman, Freddie Bobich, Kevin Karani. Remember him? Milos, Mi- Miroslav Klose, uh, Jens Lehmann, Michael Balak, Sebastian Kiel, Jens Jeremies, the kind of the, the poor man's Gattuso. Uh, Christian Ziga still knocking about at that point. He had no club, but he was brought anyway. Uh, Bernd Schneider, Philippe Lam himself, Lucas Podolski, a young Lucas Podolski, and Torsten Frings. Also, a goalkeeper that I thought was going to be really good and just one of two German goalkeepers that, that didn't reach the level that they should have. Um, Timo Hildebrand looked like he was going to be genuinely great with Stuttgart. Um, would would have a really good career with them, would move on to Valencia, then Hoffenheim, Sporting, Schalke, and Eintracht Frankfurt as his career kind of petered out. Only won seven caps. Only won seven caps. And it, in part because it's a very strong position for the Germans historically, but always felt like he, he would have gotten a lot more caps. And the other one, and I will maintain that when this guy appeared on the scene, there was no more talented goalkeeper around of his kind of age group. Rene Adler, Bayer Leverkusen. He came through around the same time Manuel Nara was make, coming through at, at Schalke. And I think Adler, at, at that point, Adler was the more talented keeper. And then he got a couple of really bad injuries, including a, a horrific concussion. And he was never the same after it. Never the same. He had a horrible rib injury. I remember that. And then he had a horrible concussion. He was never the same after that. Still had a good career. Played for Leverkusen for a long time. Played for Hamburg for a long time. Uh, won 12 German caps. But again, he was one that, that should have won a lot more. He was a, he was a great goalkeeper pre-injury. Um, Latvia. Uh, Igor Stepanovs, who I think played for Arsenal, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, I think he's the, isn't he the guy that Ray Parler tells that story about? I think it's him. Uh, Marion Parhars is probably the best known Latvian footballer from an English point of view, having spent seven years with Southampton. Um, no one, well, not obviously some people knew who he was. The, the general football watching fan had no idea who he was. Um, when Southampton signed him from Skonto. And he was presented as the Latvian Michael Owen. And to his credit, he was really good. Now, it took him a while to get going, but his first full season, he got 13 goals in 33 Premier League games, then 9 in 31, then 14 in 36. Then he just started to break down with injuries. And unfortunately... Uh, his career sort of petered out from there, but he was really good. Really, really good. 75 caps for his national team. Um, finally, then the Netherlands, uh, managed by Dick Advocat, Edwin van der Sar, Michael Reitziger, Jap Stam, Wilfred Buma, Giovanni van Bronckhorst, Philippe Koku. Andy van der Meda, one of the most disappointing players of the last 25 years. 
Edgar Davids, Patrick Clivert, Ruud van Nistelrooy, Raphael van der Vaart, Roy Mackay was an unbelievable goal scorer. Roy Mackay is historically one of the most underrated nines of all time. Uh, Sander Westerfeld, who a friend of mine still calls Sander van der Westerfeld, if I don't know why, but he just does. Um, and he doesn't do it like to be funny. That's just what he thinks his name is. Uh, Wes Schneider, Frank De Boer, Mark Overmars, Pierre van Hoydonk, Johnny Heitinger, Arian Robin, Clarence Seedorf, Bolo Zenden. Pretty strong squad. Really is a really is a strong squad. So the club's best represented at this tournament: Bayern Munich, Barcelona, and Juventus all had nine players. Benfica, Inter, Milan, Chelsea, United, and Arsenal all had eight. Panic and Ithos, Porto, Lazio, Real Madrid, Liverpool, PSV Eindhoven, and Skonto all had seven. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that all seven of the Skonto players were in the Latvian squad. Um, and, and all seven of the Panic and Ithos players were probably in the Greek squad. Six from Roma, AEK Athens, Locomotive Moscow, CSKA Moscow, Stuttgart, Ajax, and Borussia Dortmund. Yeah, good odds on all them Locomotive and CSK players being in the Russian squad. Uh, Werder Bremen, Deportivo La Coruña, Zenit St. Petersburg, Valencia, and Bayer Leverkusen all provided five players for this competition. So let's jump into the group stages. In Group A, in the opening game, Portugal won, Greece two. Caragona scored after seven minutes. Vecina scored after 51. Cristiano scored a late, late, late goal to give Portugal some consolation, but they couldn't find a goal for like 93 minutes and Greece just completely locked them out. Uh, also in the first round of games in that group, Spain beat Russia 1-0. Then Greece and Spain drew 1-1. Calistias scored for Greece. Morientes scored for Spain. Portugal beat Russia 2-0. Goals from Manish and Rui Costa. Portugal beat Spain 1-0. Nuno Gomes got the goal. And then Russia beat Greece 2-1 in the final group stage game. Uh, Kirichenko and Bulikin scoring to put them 2-0 up. Vrisas got one back for Greece in the late in the first half, but they couldn't find an equalizer. They didn't need an equalizer. They went through four points, four goals scored, four conceded, zero goal difference. Spain had zero goal difference and four points, but only scored two goals. And the one-one draw didn't separate them either. So the fact that Greece scored more goals uh put them through. And Spain and the rest of Europe probably swore loudly because nobody wanted to play Greece because they were horrible to play against. They play Ray Hagel had them playing modern day Catanacho. Um in group B. Switzerland nil, Croatia nil, France two, England nil. England go one up through Lampard in the 38th minute. Zidane scores in the 91st minute. And Zidane scores again in the 93rd minute from a penalty as France beat England and England were devastated. And you can hear the joy still in my voice. Uh, England 3, Switzerland 0, 2 from Rooney, 1 from Gerrard. Croatia 2, France 2. 
Uh, Rapiac with a penalty and Prizo with the goals for Croatia. And Igor Tudor own goal and then a David Trezeguet goal for the French. Croatia 2, England 4. Croatia went 1-0 up through Niko Kovac. Then Rooney scored, sorry, then Skoll scored, then Rooney scored. Went in 2-1 up at half time. Came back out, Rooney scored again. Tudor got one back and then Lampard wrapped it up for England. Uh, Switzerland 1, France 3, Zidane and 2 from Thierry Henry. Volenten with the only goal for Switzerland. France top on 7 points, England second on 6. Croatia and Switzerland go out. In Group C, Denmark 0, Italy 0. Sweden 5, Bulgaria 0. Lumberg 2 from Larsen, 1 from Zlatan and a last gasp goal from Allback giving the Swedes a very comprehensive win. Bulgaria nil, Denmark two, John Dahl Thomason and Jesper Gronkow with the goals. Sweden one, Italy one, Cassano and Ibrahimovic with the respective goal. Sweden one, Zlatan scored, Italy one, Cassano scored. Uh, last round then, Italy two, Bulgaria one, Peretta and Cassano with the goals. Cassano with a last gasp winner in that one. Martin Petrov had put Bulgaria one up from the penalty spot. And then Sweden two, Denmark two, Henrik Larsson and Olaf Janssen with the goals. A late, late goal for Sweden in that one as well. John Dahl Thomason had scored both for the Danes. That late Swedish goal ensured that they topped the group and Italy went out. Sweden top, five points, plus five goal difference. Denmark second, five points, plus five goal difference. Italy third, five points, plus one goal difference. Had Sweden not scored that late goal, Denmark would have topped the group. Sweden would have, or Italy would have been second and Sweden would have finished in third and gone out along with Bulgaria. In Group D, the Czech Republic beat Latvia 2-1, Milan Baros and Marie Hines with the goal. They will not try and pronounce the Latvian gentleman's goal, or Lat- Latvian gentleman's name, but I will congratulate him on his goal. Uh, Torsten Frings scored for Germany in a 1-1 draw with the Netherlands. Ruud van Nistelrooy scored for the Dutch. Latvia nil, Germany nil. Imagine the embarrassment for the Germans. Referee for that game, by the way, Mike Riley, one of the more hated Premier League referees of all time. The Netherlands two, the Czech Republic three, Collar, Barros and Schmitzer with the goals. Buma and Van Nistelrooy had put the Dutch 2-0 up and then the Czechs roared back and won the game. Netherlands three, Latvia nil, uh, two for Van Nistelrooy, one for Mackay and the Czechs beat the Germans 2-1. Balak had put Germany one up. Heinze and Barros with the goals for the Czechs. So the Czechs roll through perfect. Three wins from three. They went behind in every single game. And then they woke up and fired back. They went two behind in the Dutch game and woke up and fired back. So promising signs for the Czechs. Uh, Obviously beaten finalists in 96. Uh, Netherlands second with four points. Germany going out along with Latvia, the source of much embarrassment for the Germans. And um, one of the things that caused the tear down and rebuild of German football. 
into the quarterfinals then. Portugal 2, England 2. Michael Owen puts England 1 up. Helder Postiga scores a late goal to equalise for Portugal. We go to extra time. Rui Costa puts Portugal 2-1 up. Frank Lampard equalises and we head to penalties. Deco scores, Beckham misses. Simao scores, Owen scores. Rui Costa misses, Lampard scores. Ronaldo scores, John Terry scores. Manish scores, Hargreaves scores. Postiga scores, Ashley Cole scores. Ricardo scores. And I bet there's not many people that off the top of the head could have remembered that Darius Fasal was the one who missed the penalty. Wayne Rooney had had to go off, you'll remember, with the foot injury. And Darius Fasal came on on 27 minutes. And it was him who had to step up and take the penalty. And he missed. And England were out. France nil, Greece won. Caristius with the only goal of the game. I am certainly butchering his name. Um, the Greeks played a Christmas three formation, four, three, two, one. And when you had the ball, the two behind the striker would drop back into central midfield, either side of Katsaronis, and Karagounis and Basinas would drop wide, almost as wing-backs. So they had a back four, wing-backs in front of that, then a block of three in midfield, and then a line of three in midfield, rather, and then a striker up front basically chasing his own tail for most of the game. Their entire game plan was predicated on set pieces. I remember where I was. I didn't see this game live. I was at Metallica in the RDS in Dublin. And Lars Ulrich came out on stage at the end of the gig and said, for those that haven't seen the result tonight, France nil, Greece won. Bye-bye, France. And then he chucked his beer into the crowd. And I remember it plain as day. And I, I, I don't know why that uh, that has always stuck with me, that it was him that informed me that Greece had beaten France in the Euros in what was an enormous shock. Uh, Sweden nil, the Dutch nil. No score after 90, no score after extra time. Into penalties we go. Kallstrom scores, Van Nistelrooy scores, Larsen scores, Heitinger scores. Whisper it quietly, but Zlatan missed. Reitziger scored, Lumberg scored, Kaku misses and allows the Swedes back into it. Wilhelmsen scores, Mackay scores, he was never missing. Olaf Melberg misses and then Arjen Robin scores and through go the Dutch. And in the final quarterfinal, the Czech Republic three, Denmark nil, Jan Koller and two from Milan Barros. Lars Ulrich wouldn't be quite as happy after that one. To the semifinals, Portugal two, the Netherlands one. Ronaldo and Manish gave Portugal a 2-0 lead. Andrade put through his own net to pull the Dutch back into it, but the Dutch were not good on the day. 
Greece won the Czech Republic nil. The Czech Republic went into this game favourites. They've been really good through the tournament so far. But Trenius Delos scored Delos scored the only goal of the game just on the stroke of half time in extra time. The silver goal. So if you remember, we'd had the golden goal, which was If a team scores, the game ends. No matter if it's the first minute of extra time or the last minute, the game ends. The silver goal was if they score, say, five minutes into the period of extra time, be it the first or second, the game will go to the end of that period. So if if he'd scored in the 95th minute, the Czechs would have had 10 minutes or so to get back into the game. It might have been that it ended the game in the second period of extra time, but for the first period, I'm I'm 99.9% certain it was that you would play out the rest of that first period of extra time. But he scored in the last minute of extra time, or last minute of the first half of extra time, basically ending the game 30 seconds later, and the Greeks were through. So we go to the final. Portugal are favourites because Portugal are at home. But the Greeks have upset everybody along the way. From the group stage, through to France, through to the Czechs. Nobody expected them to get here. They were a team of largely unknown players to those of us who didn't watch Greek football. And, you know, in 2004, there was no real way to watch Greek football. You'd see Greek teams in the Champions League, but that would be about it. Now, Ray Hagel had had a, a good career for Hertha Berlin and Kaiserslautern, but he'd really earned his coin as a manager, and he was a great manager. Managed Werder Bremen briefly in the 70s, then he went to Dortmund, Armenia Belfield, Fortuna Dusseldorf, and found his way back to Werder in 1981, where he stayed for 14 years. Then he went to Bayern and he didn't enjoy the atmosphere at Bayern, didn't enjoy the egos at Bayern. He went to Kaiserslautern for four years and he took over with, with Greece. And he would manage them for the better part of 10 years. And his last job then, he had a brief, spent, a brief stint with Hertha Berlin. Um, and again, he didn't much like it there. With Werder Bremen, he won two Bundesliga titles in 88 and 93. He also won the Cup Winners' Cup in 92, alongside two Dutch Cups in 91 and 94. But what he did at Kaiserslautern is even more impressive. He took them over in the second division, won the second division, and then the first time of asking, won the Bundesliga. And... You have to remember, he had been treated very, very badly by Bayern Munich. Very, very badly. He got them to UEFA Cup final. Their league form had collapsed. There's no point in dilly-dallying around. But Dortmund were so strong at that time that nobody was taking that title off them. But he got them to a, a final. And four days before the first leg of the final, he was sacked. And he would have won that final. 
Like, that's a trophy that he should have. But unfortunately, it was taken away from him by the powers that be. There was no doubt they would have beaten Bordeaux. Now, it was a good Bordeaux team. It's the Bordeaux team with Zidane. But there's no doubt that Bayern were the better team and would have... No, it's not the Bordeaux team with Zidane. Zidane didn't play because he was injured. Zinedine Zidane. He did play the second leg. Did he play the first leg? No, he didn't play the first leg. He played the second leg. Yeah, he was either injured or suspended, probably suspended knowing what Zidane was like. Uh, also in that team, by the way, Bixante Lazarazu. Um, it was a, it was a good team, but like the Bayern team, Oliver Kahn, Lothar Mateus, Thomas Helmer, Marcus Babel, Christian Ziga, Dietmar Hammond, Syriacos Forza, Mehmet Scholl, Jurgen Klinsmann, Jean-Pierre Papin. Like, that's a ferocious team. Oliver Kruser is the one player I didn't list. He's the other centre-back. He's the one player on that list who wasn't outstanding at their the peak of their powers. On the bench, you've got Andy Herzog, excellent. Christian Nerlinger, very, very good. Uh, Dieter Fry was, was decent. Second leg. Hayes, Babel played centre-back. Thomas Strunz came into the team. Dieter Fry started instead of Haman. Uh, I think was was injured, yeah. Uh, and Emil uh, Kostadinov was in that team because Papan was injured for the second leg. Um, there's no doubt in my mind that Bayern would have won with Ray Hagel in charge, but he was he was robbed of that success. Um, it's the only job since he took over Armenia Belfield where he didn't succeed. He was good at Belfield, earned the Fortuna Dusseldorf job, went there, did really well, got the Werder Bremen job, did incredibly well, went to Bayern. It's, you know, he still won 64% of his games, but at Bayern, it's not enough. Went to Kaiserslautern, was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And then, you know, does what he does with Greece. Sets them up to play this aggressively defensive style of football. Just wants to swamp the opposition in muck and gullion and force them in force them into the long grass. Force them to come and, you know, fight them on the high ground, as you say. They they weren't going to bend to what you wanted the game to to be. They were going to make you beat them at their game because they were just that good at it. Like, yes, it's not the most exciting stuff to watch. And if you watch this competition back, which I recommend, because there's a, there's a lot of good football played in this competition. But it's when you watch the games back a couple of times, you really start to admire the Greeks and realize just how complex what they're doing actually is. It's not just parking the bus. Like, when they would counterattack, they would do it in very specific ways to try and ensure that every time they had like a final third entry, that they got something from it, be it a, a throw in, a corner, a free kick, whatever. 
They were trying to manipulate game state and they were trying to manufacture set play opportunities because one of the advantages they had is that this was a big team. You had three or four guys that were 6-3 and above. The final is a, is a fairly dour affair. Greek win, the Greeks win 1-0. Caristia scores the only goal of the game in the 57th minute. Cristiano no-shows, not unexpected at his age. Figo has a disappointing final. I've always felt like starting Paletta was the mistake. Nuno Gomes, to me, with his pace, would have made more sense against that Greek backline, which were quite slow. Okay, so the silver goal. Yeah, so if the team scored in the first half of extra time, you had to finish out the half and then the game would end if the opposition hadn't equalized. And then it sort of became golden goal in the second half. So that does make sense. Um I I I enjoyed it. I thought golden goal was cool. I thought silver goal was even better. But yeah, I, I wouldn't be against seeing it brought back in that would obviously lead to much cry arsing because that's what people do these days. But anyway, Greek success in the 2004 European Championships. Nobody saw it coming. They were rank outsiders going into this competition. If you look at the teams who were in this competition, I would guess that outside of Latvia and Bulgaria, the Greeks were probably the least fancy team to win this competition. Probably along with like your Switzerland and maybe maybe you chose throws. Although Sweden had Zlatan and Larsson and Lundberg. So like, they had players people were, were familiar with. The Greeks just didn't. They just didn't have players that people were familiar with. The manager was well known because of what he'd done in Germany. But you look at that squad, uh, Nicopolides, the goalkeeper, 33 years of age at that point, never played outside of Greece. Played for Arta, Panikonitos, left Panikonitos the summer of this competition and joined Olympiakos. Uh, Satoridis, I think he, didn't he come to England? No, he didn't. He went to Porto after this competition. Then Dinamo Moscow, Atletico Madrid, and Panikonitos. Uh, back to Panikonitos, where he'd been pre-tournament. Venetides, what do you have to say for yourself? Uh, he never played outside of Greece either. Uh, Dabizas did. Played for Newcastle for a long time, and then went to uh, went to Leicester. Was at Leicester at the time of this tournament. Nikos Davidas was a solid Premier League defender. He wasn't great. He wasn't like a standout, but he was, you know, he was solid. He was decent. 
Um, Delas was good. Delas was good. He played for Sheffield United as well. Uh, Perugia, Roma, AK Athens. Zacharakis, I mean, another one that had come to England, played with Leicester, hadn't really done all that much. After this tournament, he got a move to Bologna, didn't really settle, back to Greece. He's now a politician. Um, he's a member of the European Parliament. Um, yeah, I mean, this wasn't a, a team of household names. Even the few who were outside of playing outside of Greece weren't all that well known. But they just had this incredible spirit and togetherness. And they were so diligent in sticking to the game plan that Ray Hegel had put in. Put in. This was three years in to him being manager. And everybody had fully bought in on what it was he was selling them. He completely just changed the approach of Greek football. They were 150 to 1 to win the competition before a ball was kicked. They beat Portugal. They beat France. They knocked out Spain. In the group stage, they got through ahead of Spain, that's what I mean. They beat the Czechs and they beat Portugal again. Like, they went through all the best teams. By Christ, did they work hard. Unbelievable how hard they worked. Um, Ray Hegel was actually offered the German job after this World Cup and turned it, after this European Championship, turned it down because he didn't think they'd allow him to play this style of football. Yeah, tremendous, genuinely tremendous. There is a documentary entitled King Otto, which chronicles his success with Greece. Um, He genuinely was a, a truly great manager. Always overlooked, but like to win three Bundesligas and win none of them with Bayern is really impressive, even though it's over a long period of time. Like, actually, it's not, to be fair. He won three in 10 years, three in 11 years, and didn't win any with Bayern or Dortmund. So, yeah, there we go. Right, let's do a little bit of news, a little bit of gossip. Um, the FA has written to clubs to warn them that further use of the phrase from the river to the sea in support of Palestine will lead to the FA seeking police guidance. Why would you want to seek police guidance? Because one group claims it says something that doesn't. Bizarre. Utterly bizarre. And Hamza Chowdhury has been forced to apologise for showing support to the Palestinians. Uh, I've yet to see the support or the the apology from Manor Solomon for the lies that he told on Instagram about how it was the Palestinians that blew up their own hospital. He hasn't apologized for that. So I assume that's coming soon. 
I assume we'll we'll get that apology soon, that he will apologize for that lie that he spread to his followers on social media. Um, What else is there? Oh, this is a, it's not a funny story. It's kind of a stupid story, but uh, Irene Paredes, the Spanish international who has 99 caps, uh, was due to make her 100 appearance yesterday. But because for some reason, the Spanish FA mistakenly submitted the team sheet from the previous game, which she wasn't involved in, uh, she was unable to play. So it is, it, is, it, is, it is expected that she will make her 100 appearance on the 1st of December when Spain face Italy in a Women's Nations League match. That will make her only the third player to win 100 caps for Spain's women's team over uh, after Alexi, Alexia Putellas and Jenny Hermoso. Uh, where are we? Where are we? Where are we? Uh, Ajax forced, forced to close parts of the stadium over crowd trouble. Eric Ten Hag says there's no point in Manchester United feeling sorry for themselves. It's because they've got nothing to feel sorry for. They just need to get better. On to the gossip. Brentford are willing to sell Ivan Tony for £80 million in January. Let me tell you now, they will not get that fee. Manchester United are considering a move for Trevo Chalaba, who has been told he's not part of Maurizio Pochettino's fans. It is talk, a team talk, so you'd probably just put that in the bin. Liverpool are monitoring Ajax's 20-year-old Netherlands defender, Divine Wrench, but could face competition from Ajax. I like that one. I think that would make sense. Newcastle have initiated talks with Santos about signing Marcus Leonardo in January. I like that one. That could that could be a good move. Wolves, West Ham and Leeds are competing to sign Fluminense's Jon Arias. I don't know that he'd be interested in the move to Leeds, but certainly could see him at West Ham. Contract talks between Manchester United and Aaron Wan-Bissaka seem to have stalled and United will instead instead aim to activate a 12-month extension in his current deal. Borussia Dortmund are ready to let Jamie Benoit-Gittens leave on loan in January as they explore a return for Jadon Sancho. Andre Onana has agreed to play for Cameroon in the AFCON and could miss seven domestic matches. He won't miss seven because they won't get that far, but it might be a good thing for United to be without him for a while anyway. Manchester United scouts watched Portugal goalkeeper Diogo Costa in action for Porto against Vasella on Sunday. It would be hilarious to see them move and sign a new goalkeeper, having just spent £50 million on that goalkeeper. Arsenal, Chelsea and Real Madrid want to sign Naj Razi. That was, a, that was in yesterday's as well. Uh, Rodrigo is set to sign a new contract with Real Madrid until 2028 having been recently linked to Liverpool and PSG. Ansu Fati, who is attracting interest, sorry, who's on loan at Brighton, is attracting interest from Saudi Arabia. He won't go to Saudi Arabia. Barcelona are tracking Santiago Jimenez. Yeah, I mean, fair, okay. He's really good, but you've got Lewandowski. I don't really know why you'd want another striker. Everton, Roma and Lazio all want to sign Wilfred Nanto, who attempted to force a move away from Leeds in the summer. Um, yeah, but Leeds are fairly adamant that they're going to keep him. Everton's 19-year-old English forward Francis Ockenronquo has agreed a new long-term contract. 
And finally, Letaro Martinez is happy at Inter Milan, despite being linked with Real Madrid. And there we go. That's all we have for today. So I'll see you all tomorrow. Take care and goodbye. Podcast Network.